0: Want to detox your mind for clearer thinking, deeper relationships, and lasting happiness? Buckle on up as you are about to learn how to get healthy from a New York Times bestselling author and celebrity doctor.
1: Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of Motivation,
0: Eli Marcus. Our guest on the Motivation Show is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain. And I read that, and that's a great read. He has written seven other books, including his latest, which he co-authored with his son called Brainwash, which I can't put down, I'm still reading that, which shows you how to detox your mind for clearer thinking, deeper relationships, and lasting happiness. Welcome to The Motivation Show, Dr. David Perlmutter. I am so happy to be here, and I feel very motivated already. Well, thank you for that. So I've been a fan of yours since Grain Brain. You were at the time a little bit contrarian, but uh, you are a pioneer because people are now definitely going more into your direction, realizing
2: that the overload of carbs may not have been the best thing in the world, right? Who knew even back then, but you're right. That's been so validated by so much research. You know, we got, I think, taken off the scent uh, about 30 years ago due to the influence of industry in terms of medical publications, telling us that the big villain was fat and that you know people still needing calories then defaulted to carbohydrates because everybody was cutting out fat. There was fat-free this and that. And it turns out that fat is uh, an important food group for us, one that we have a macronutrient, one that we've been consuming for as long as we've walked the planet, a wonderful, a source for us to build various cell membranes, hormones, acting as an anti-inflammatory and certainly as a fuel source as well. So it's good that that wrong has been righted. And we now realize that uh, you know this refined carbohydrate thing that was perpetrated on us really had a lot of detrimental downstream effects on humanity. But now we're back in the saddle, uh, eating more higher levels of good fat and really realizing that it's the refined carbs that are creating so much havoc with our health.
0: You know, what's remarkable is we can go generations, you know, where our parents and our grandparents consumed all these things that they thought were good for them, only to years later and generations later find out things are the exact opposite. And that's why we need thought leaders like you who are out there, not necessarily accepting the status quo, (laughs) and can maybe bring us a fresh new perspective, which you really do in your uh, new book. And I want to get into the new book, Brainwash. How we are brainwashed into believing a lot of uh, puppycock,
2: <laughs> as they say. The truth is that uh, we are being manipulated, and I, uh, this isn't supposed to sound like a conspiracy theory. But I think we all recognize that we live our lives at the mercy of having our operating systems taken over by people who may not necessarily have our interest at heart. And we, you know, we call this limbic capitalism, whereby our emotional drive centers in the limbic brain are being hacked by people who want us to buy something, subscribe to something, uh, do something. And you know it's not necessarily in our interest to continue to eat foods that somebody wants us to. They may not be good for our health. We don't necessarily need a new car. We don't necessarily need the various products that appear on our screen in terms of pop-ups day in and day out, specifically cultivated for us based upon where we've been on the web. So I think it's so important for us to first realize it's going on. Second, realize the harm that it is doing for us in terms of our thought processes, in terms of our decision-making day to day, in terms of our happiness. And third, once we realize that it's happening and what it's doing to us, then recreating a better framework for ourselves to be in a position to make better decisions, to really reclaim Uh, control over the operating system and ultimately gain some level of happiness.
0: You know, it's interesting, doctor, I'm walking the other day uh, in the evening, for my daily walk, and I'm in a sort of little mall. And what I noticed, the only places that were open and hopping were the ice cream places (laughs) or the candy shops. There were no fruits places. There were no vegetable places. There was nothing that was nourishing. Why is that?
2: Because it, it sells. You know, open a vegetable store in the mall and good luck with that. You know, we are just bombarded by the notion that these are good choices and it's a a deep hack into our primitive brain areas that cause us to want to eat sweet. Everyone walking the planet has a sweet tooth. It's not a, a sign that there's something wrong with you. We have a deep evolutionary connection to our desire to eat sweets because in our hunter gatherer days, sweet was a signal to our physiology to make and store fat. We only really got sweet at the end of the summer and the early fall when fruit would become ripe. We would gravitate towards that fruit because it was sweet and it would tell our bodies to make fat. And that was a survival mechanism that allowed us to make fat, store fat. So we had a caloric backup for times during the winter when food may not be as readily available. Now you know, we are making and storing fat because of the effect of that sweet tooth in terms of our decision-making. We're making and storing fat 365 days a year for the winter that never really comes. We never ever approach a time of caloric scarcity yeah. anymore. So it's really what we call an evolutionary environmental mismatch, whereby our evolution selected us out to have a sweet tooth and to do things with our physiology. When we consume fructose, and glucose, but now they are overabundant in terms of our diet. And so then we, we become insulin resistant, we develop diabetes, we gain weight around the middle uh, and our blood sugar values go up. We develop dyslipidemia, all high blood pressure, all kinds of things related to this consumption of sugar. So it no longer serves us. Interestingly though, it did serve us until only very, very recently.
0: Yeah, you know, you talk about in your book about these endless temptations, you know, that we literally live in a society we can eat whatever we want, whenever we want. That's not how our ancestors lived, because going way, way back, they may have had to chase some wild animals just to put food on the table. Now we just press buttons and magically the food appears, or we go out to any one of a number of a hundred restaurants in the neighborhood, and uh, they put anything and everything on our plate. So you know, when I grew up, I pretty much ate everything. You know, and uh, when I think about the Twinkies and the Yodels and all the other things that I ate on a regular basis. I almost wanted those as my meals, not just my snack. But you grow up and you start feeling guilty. Like, oh, I know better now, and I'm still eating this. Uh, and yet you're taking us, you're giving us an opportunity to take ourselves off the hook a little bit, because you you're not, bet. you're not just blaming ourselves. We're not we don't have to just blame ourselves. we being exactly, manipulated.
2: Exactly right. In fact, you know, the genesis of Brainwash, the book, Happened right in this room with uh, my son and I discussing exactly what you just said, and that is taking the blame away. Uh, when we realize that our primitive, powerfully influential brain centers are being hacked, it really does tend to unload that blame. You know, we as doctors tell patients, all right, we need you to exercise 20 minutes a day and stop eating the carbs, on and on. Most people don't do those things. They come back time after time. Weight keeps going up. Blood sugar keeps going up. And what do we do? Well, we point a finger, say, you just can't seem to follow the recommendations I'm making. It's your fault. And you can be sure, Eli, when people get home, they look at the mirror and look at themselves and they blame themselves as well. And we've got to stop that blame because we understand now that our decision-making is really made either from one of two areas of the brain. Either it's that impulsive primitive brain area that we've been talking about, influenced in significant degree by an area called the amygdala, a primitive brain area. And then we have another area that's less impulsive and more thoughtful and can make better decisions, helps understand good versus bad, helps understand How what we do might not just be good for us, but good for other people as well. And that's an area up behind the forehead called the prefrontal cortex. And what we've learned about and describe in Brainwash is that this prefrontal cortex exercises normally, gratefully, a top-down control, basically reining in the five-year-old brain, the impulsive amygdala brain that would eat the chocolate cake day in and day out, that would do things that might not be good for other people. We are able to override that with this incredible prefrontal cortex that we have that allows us to make better decisions. But what we've learned and we talk about in the book is we get disconnected from that ability. We call it, as you may have stumbled upon already, disconnection syndrome. That is the separation of the adult in the room from the child in the room. And one of the most powerful mechanisms that brings that about is something called inflammation. Inflammation in the brain keeps the adult out of the room and inflammation by and large is brought on by our lifestyle choices. So you can begin to understand how when you go to the mall and you give in and buy those sweet products at, uh, at those stores that you talk about, that creates inflammation moving forward that further locks you out for making good decisions. And what do you do? You keep buying those foods and engaging in a lifestyle that are disruptive for you, are threatening towards your health. And the main goal of Brainwash, the book, is really to reestablish that connection, to offset the disconnection that we develop between our primitive, impulsive, not thinking about the future brain and the more sophisticated, kind, loving a part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, that allows for better decision making.
0: So, you know, you mentioned in your book how the junk food, of course, is bad for us and how we eat it all the time and we're being programmed to ingest, you call them poisons, I call them poisons. And in our attempts to cope, you use the words that we turn to, instant gratification. Now, so many of us are overwhelmed or stressed out. We're k- trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, we're, the pace of, of new inventions are, are so rapid that our heads are spinning. You know, we, we see what other people are posting on Instagram. We want to live up to that. And we just can't. So the first thing we, we think of is, let me grab the, the, the bag of cheese doodles, because it's a lot quicker and more satisfying than sitting there, you know, for 20 minutes and cooking a, a, a good plate of vegetables. So you get into... Um, in chapter 11, an outline of a 10 day brainwash program on how we can fix some of these things. Tell us a little bit about how we can fix something like that.
2: Well, first let's go back to you know, the whole paradigm whereby bad decision-making makes for bad decision-making. In other words, uh, eating foods that increase inflammation further compromises our ability to make good decisions. Having high levels of inflammation because we didn't get a good night's sleep the night before, as an example that cortisol, the stress hormone, increases inflammation and can sever us from the ability to make better decisions. And you know what we offer in that 10-day plan, it's really the heart and soul of the entire book, and that is what are the on-ramps for better decision-making? And let me take you into the clinic. Here we are with uh, Mr. Jones, who has diabetes and is overweight, and clearly Mr. Jones needs to change his diet. But it's important to recognize that you know, handing him a preprinted diet that's low carb, high fat, and sending him on his way isn't going to work. I did all of my work uh, in terms of learning the information. I did the best I could to create a way to give that person uh, information, but we really rely on him or her making then the decision to implement the new information that we've given them, whether it's something we said to them or this, a pre-printed sheet that we hope they're going to follow. Truth of the matter is they've been given that sheet and so many others, and it isn't going to be effective. They'll come back with higher blood sugar, weight gain, higher blood pressure, you name it. So they don't have the ability to tap into the prefrontal cortex to make better decisions. We've got to work on that. And that is what that 10 day plan is all about. For example, we might offer Mr. Jones instead at the first visit, a set of ideas that relates to getting a better night's sleep. It may be that the main issue for him not being able to make good decisions and carrying out our recommendations has to do with the fact that he's not sleeping long enough or well enough. And that's very powerful. Who talks about that? Yet uh, we know that when we haven't gotten enough restorative sleep, even for one night, that we may activate this amygdala, this impulsivity, bad decision-making part of the brain by as much as 60%. So sleep is really a player here. How do you know? You know, Mr. Jones says, look, I've been sleeping eight hours a night. Well, I would challenge him and say, number one, how do you know that's actually happening? And number two, beyond how long you sleep, what is the quality of your sleep? And That's when people are back on their heels. They can't answer the question. So we say, have you ever considered a wearable device Uh, like an Aura ring, for example, that allows you first thing in the morning to take your smartphone, put it near your Aura ring and you'll know immediately how well you slept the night before. Uh, How long did you sleep? What was the quality of sleep? How much deep sleep did you get? How much REM sleep did you get? And it's extremely valuable information to know first thing when you wake up Because then you can make changes in how late you watch television, what time was your last cup of coffee, what time of day did you exercise, how close was going to sleep uh, bedtime to finishing dinner, for example. All of these things can be looked at in terms of getting you a more restorative night's rest, which allows you then the next day to be in a better frame of mind for better decision making. And then... Ultimately be able to make those dietary changes. It might be an on-ramp to better decision making, might be keeping a gratitude journal, connecting with somebody you haven't spoken with in a long time, getting out in nature. Nature exposure is a powerful way to re-establish connection to the better uh, decision-making part of the brain. So that's really what we outline in this 10-day program. You know, and, and clearly what we're doing is we're going back. To various areas in the book that more fully unpack each of these ideas
0: well you know i want to comment on your comment about sleep because literally one-third of our life is spent in the sleep slate or should yeah 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 and yet how often do we even discuss that we go to our doctor we get our prescription i can't remember in the in a hundred doctors i've probably been to one time where sleep was ever discussed as a possible cause of any of my ailments and I'm pretty sure that sleep has a lot to do with it because, you know, a New York city guy like me <laughs> type.
2: I, I'm going to show you, <laughs> I'm going to show you right now what my night was like last night. Okay. How about that for in real time? Okay. So here is my sleep score. So I got a 94. Mm-hmm. And then as we look down through all the other parameters, I had high scores in total sleep, efficiency, restfulness, REM sleep, deep sleep, latency, meaning how long it took to to go to sleep, uh, fall asleep, and I slept for eight hours and 19 minutes. How do I know? Because I wear a wearable device. It could be your, whatever. There are plenty of them out there. That gives me that information. It's exceedingly valuable. I know my blood sugar at any given moment of any, any, at any time by looking at my phone because I wear a continuous glucose monitor. I will be able to tell you, did this food affect my blood sugar? I check my uric acid actually quite frequently, and I check my level of ketones. These are, as you say, not things that your doctor necessarily is going to bring up at the time of your evaluation because she or he may not necessarily be dialed into those things as being important metrics that relate to health. You mentioned earlier the idea of feeling that you're not keeping up with the Joneses. And I think that you know, our society would have us believe that keeping up with the Joneses means having a car of equal or better value or prestige. And I would say, I'd like the idea of keeping up with the Joneses as it relates to doing all the things that can bring you better health. You know, Are the Joneses exercising each day? Are they getting to bed on time? Do they know their blood sugar? Do they know how well they slept? Do they use wearable devices? Those are things perhaps that the Joneses are doing where you know understanding that you can be competitive takes on a new meaning because this is the competition that's going to turn out to be good for eli uh, not just have you go out and spend money and buy a bigger car
0: yeah you know what's interesting is i th- i believe that so many people around me put on a facade because they think that's what you want to see but i think deep down inside a lot of people are struggling with the thought that they just have to keep up and it, you know, the pace of trying to keep up is is almost overwhelming. And is it worth it? You know, Uh, is it better to make sure that every morning you go out and exercise, that you spend more time meditating, learning how to breathe? Because you talk about that as well, breathing and meditating. In fact, I think it's an important subject. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about those two topics. I mean,
2: two essentials. Well, certainly breathing is, and I would say meditation is as well. And again, you know, these are other, and I don't want to call them hacks because we we all breathe, not everybody meditates, but these are, uh, we call them on-ramps, paying attention to breathing, how we breathe. We describe it in the book, uh, techniques that will help us very quickly lower our stress level. Why is that so important as does meditation? I didn't say medication because (laughs) stress It's very disruptive to our bodies for a number of reasons. The main stress hormone, you alluded to it earlier, as you talked about your own testing, is cortisol. And cortisol is a fast track to amplify inflammation. It does so through a number of mechanisms, one of which uh, involves the gut bacteria. So cortisol changes the array and the diversity of our gut bacteria. And our gut bacteria play an important role in regulating the set point of inflammation in our bodies. Cortisol is also disruptive to the gut lining and we can threaten the gut lining with higher levels of cortisol and that can lead also to inflammation. So interestingly, you know, we are circling back to just some very few fundamental mechanistic ideas, inflammation being one and dysregulation of our blood sugar and insulin being another. So we know that uh, meditation helps lower our cortisol level, but it also directly is a fast track into turning on this prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain involved in better decision-making, executive function, compassion, and empathy, while at the very same time, it turns down the activity of the impulsivity center, the amygdala. So if you want to have a tonic then that's going to pave the way for your brain to function as a better decision maker, that is what being involved in a daily meditation program can do. And we're looking at only a 20-minute program. There are many techniques out there. turns out, according to the work of Dr. Andrew Newberg in his new book, Brain Weaver, that it really doesn't matter which technique you use. Any of the techniques that allow you to focus on something, it could be on a mantra, it could be on your breathing, but it's really not just the focusing on something, but really distancing yourself for that 20 minute period away from what you need to do today. What time is that appointment? Did I get ready for this? What am I gonna wear? All the things, right? All those busy circuits that are bombarding our thought process day and night. That 20 minutes of trying, though you can't totally do it, uh, uh, trying to get away from those ideas and, re- and bringing yourself to a calm place lights up that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. You know, other animals have a prefrontal cortex. The chimpanzees, 17% of the cortex of the brain is prefrontal cortex. But we have uh, about 34% of our brain, twice that of a chimpanzee is dedicated to being that gift, to being that area of the brain that can allow us to be compassionate to ourselves, uh, empathetic to ourselves and others, and even empathetic to the needs of the planet.
0: Yeah, I wanna stay on the topic of meditation for just another moment, because I think what you said was very profound, because I think a lot of people, almost every human being has been told at some point or another or read that they should meditate, and probably almost everybody uh, agrees with that, but yet most people likely don't meditate. And I think they get caught up in how do I do it? And you just said it, don't worry about uh, how you do it, just do it, you know, whatever way, keep the silence and, and focus on something. So there are some people that are going to uh, still say, I don't have 20 minutes in a day, you know, I'm overwhelmed, they're going to find the excuses, speak to that, convince people why they need to trade in 20 minutes of something else for those 20 minutes of meditation.
2: So as we describe in the book, it's really a question of making the time versus finding the time. So if you are going to say, well, I'm going to try to find the time for meditation today, that ranks it a lot lower on the scale of the other things that you really think you've got to do. Uh, So I think making the time, partitioning the time, do you have to get up earlier? Do you have to uh, take time during the middle of the day? Whenever, but prioritizing meditation. And I think that for those who say, "Well, I don't have the time because I need to do what I'm doing. I need to be productive in my in whatever I do," recognize that your productivity, your creativity, uh, your balance is going to improve by engaging in a meditation program. So, if productivity, for example, is your goal then by all means, why wouldn't you not want to engage in a meditation program? Why would you not want to meditate where you can improve the balance of your immune system, reduce inflammation, reduce cortisol, amp up the activity of your prefrontal cortex? All those things are really good for you in the long run, no matter what your goal may be. I mean, this reduction of inflammation paves the way for really improving how the brain works. If your work or whatever it is you're engaged in demands you to have a functional brain, that would be probably anything you do, then meditation allows that to happen and paves the way for ultimately reaching your goal, whatever it may be.
0: You know, in part one of uh, Brainwash, which you titled uh, Living Under the Influence, you know, you talk about mental hijacking that undermines our search for joy and meaning. There's so many people out there, you know, who are just depressed and just out of it. They're kind of, in many ways, they've just given up. They just say, you know, something, I'll, I'll just deal with it the best that I can. I'm, I'm exhausted. I've been to, you know, many doctors. I've tried things, it just doesn't work. Speak to those people on simple things that they can do besides meditating and breathing.
2: Maybe that could cheer
0: them up and uplift them and give them hope.
2: Well, I'd say for that individual that you describe, which probably is a description that throws a, a, a wide net these days, especially, I would say there's great hope. Uh, there is. Full optimism that they're hearing from me to you right now and to them. Because, you know, there are so many things that a person can engage that are kind of off topic that can help them regain the ability uh, then to feel better, to work on, to improve their moods, make better decisions, and ultimately make decisions as they relate to being healthy even. And it may be that these are on ramps that they haven't considered. Let me give an example. We know that there's a very wonderfully researched uh, tool that can improve mood, that can lower inflammation, lower stress, and it's called nature exposure. And uh, we know that Japan has done so much research uh, in the value of, of nature exposure. Forest bathing is a, is a thing. And you know people might say, well, I don't live near a park. You know, The research shows that just getting out of doors, even in a city, getting to an area where there may be some trees will within 20 minutes lower your cortisol. These, they've taken subjects, taken them outside, measured the cortisol in their saliva, and it goes down dramatically just by being outside around some trees. It even is effective to be inside if you have an indoor plant uh, that you interact with in the kitchen, in the living room, and even beyond an indoor plant, just images of nature, photographs, paintings, whatever works, you know, sculpture in your home that is around you Will speak to your brain, will speak to your prefrontal cortex and allow you to kind of shut off that messaging that is fanning the flames of impulsivity and bad decision making and allow you to regain control. So, you know, these are simple things I would think that most people could do.
0: Yeah, you know, changing your environment is just so vital. In fact, I, I read a study a long time ago where it says if you have a fish tank and you just look at the fish, it lowers your blood pressure.
2: <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, any connection with other types of nature uh, is powerfully, the word is salubrious, meaning bringing us health. And it's very true that we are awed. Uh, we experience awe when we experience uh, new environments that are virtually can take our breath away And that has powerful effects in terms of actually rewiring our brains. So, you know, we encourage that. now, especially now uh, when people have spent, you know, a long period of time being away from uh, new experiences, being away from nature by virtue of some constraints uh, that have been placed upon us. But now, you know, we're seeing uh, the ability that we have to get back into the game and experience nature, experience new surroundings novelty, which is so important for our growth. But even beyond that, at home, if you're home, meditation, making sure you're getting enough sleep, a good 20 minutes of something aerobic each day, being careful what you eat. And if people are struggling with the diet part of any program, whatever diet you feel is going to be best for you, whether it's paleo, keto, uh, vegan, gluten-free, whatever it is that you think is important, that may very well be good for you. Uh, the notion of being able to you know, be all in on that diet can be challenging for so many people because they are wired away from good decision-making. And our whole mission is to change that.
0: Oh, one of the fun things about Brainwash is you have a whole section on 40 delicious recipes. And I know all 40 of them are are your favorites, but maybe is there one or two you can kind of share with us?
2: Well, truthfully, it's a little bit self-serving, but my wife's salad dressing, the vinaigrette salad dressing is, uh, I don't know how she does it, I kill for that. So it's, uh, it's one of my favorites. You know, There's a lot of, of recipes in there that are designed with the thought of lowering inflammation. What does that mean? It means removing the types of foods that can lead to you know, turning on the inflammatory path in people. Uh, and a lot of the recipes you will note are plant-based. And you know, for the author of Grain Brain to be providing plant-based recipes may seem contradictory, but even in the grain brain days, you know, Grain Brain was not Atkins Redux. It wasn't about eating, you know, uh, bacon and, and meat at every meal. It never was. It's always been about favoring plants and favoring fiber to nurture the gut bacteria. But you know, more and more, I think it's quite clear that the more plant-based we become, the better. Doesn't mean that you can't have animal products in your diet if that's your choice. It's my choice. I have fish and I eat eggs. But again, uh, you know, a lot of these dietary recommendations, when you stick with them, are basically good, within you know certain uh, caveats. As an example, vegan diet is wonderful, but be careful to make sure you get enough omega threes and enough. Uh, sources of vitamin D and B12. Yeah, you bet. Uh, In which case, terrific diet, lots of great fiber, nurture the gut bacteria, you're home free. So a lot of people listening to this are probably
0: going to want to get in touch with you. How do they reach out to you? Do you do virtual calls? uh, Tell us about your website? How do we get to the doctor?
2: I'm at, believe it or not, drperlmutter.com. My weekly podcast is called The Empowering Neurologist. Uh, and that is on my website. It's also on YouTube, wherever podcasts appears, where you'll find it, uh, Apple, you name it. And that is of course free. Um, and we have uh, a lot of, lot of content on the website, totally searchable. We post uh, you know, a bunch of new scientific studies in their full PDF form uh, every week, uh, searchable by topic. So a lot of information, all my blogs appear there as well. And I'm also on Facebook and my team does Facebook appearances as well.
0: Well, anything else that you want to share with our audience that may have to do with your part two of your book,
2: (laughs) which is breaking the spell and the tools that we need to just get better,
0: anything in general?
2: There is, Eli, actually. And you mentioned something a moment ago, and I want to go back to it. And that was, you know, you sort of presented the person who thinks that all is lost and can't really um, turn things around. I want to speak to that person right now. And that is that you may think that because all of the things you've tried thus far have failed you, but you've never actually approached your decision making apparatus, your brain, how the brain uh, makes decisions. And once you regain control and can make uh, better decisions, then everything will then fall into place for you. So uh, all is not lost. And maybe today is the first day. Uh, when you can really make the efforts and use the tools to regain that ability.
0: Well, Doctor, I wanna thank you for bringing hope, inspiration and motivation to our listeners today.
2: I hope we did that. That was our goal and thank you for having me.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's com.